Uh, so I'd like to thank you very much for joining us here today for a, a special event for us and for Queen's Law. And we're very uh, happy to welcome uh, our wonderful speaker, uh, Dr. Vic uh, Victoria Shepherd. And I'm going to formally introduce you in a moment, Victoria. But I'd just like to start with noting that we're here on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee peoples. Uh, and just to pay a, a note of respect um, for the long history and traditions of the indigenous peoples, both in this area and from across Canada or Turtle Island, as the indigenous people uh, call it. So uh, just a, a note, a reflection on that. And uh, I know myself, I'm always very grateful uh, for being here as a, an uninvited guest. Um, so in terms of housekeeping, as I mentioned, we have folks on uh, Zoom. Uh, so when, if you're on Zoom and you want to participate, um, I think you write your questions uh, in the Q&A and uh, I will field it. Uh, I will field them and relay them to the to the room and to the audience. Uh, otherwise, you know, here you do that old fashioned thing of sticking your hand up uh, and uh, we can we can move through uh, in that way. Uh, we're also going to record this session and so we'll be able to use that later if folks can reflect on it uh, and you can use it as a podcast if you like as you're driving along the snowy climbs of Canada uh, thinking about going to Wales sometime perhaps. Um, so uh, the topic that we're going to speak uh, here from our speaker on as you know is research participation for adults lacking capacity to consent. Uh, and we're very lucky, and I know he needs an introduction for many of you, to have Professor Eric Knudsen of our law faculty, who's a leading expert um, in tort law and in health law, uh, and in many area, other areas of law, including insurance law. What aren't you good at? Uh, yeah, no, uh, I'm a good cook. <laughs> not a good cook, wow. Um, and so really grateful that you are able to do that, Eric, today. Thank you very much. And we're also totally delighted uh, to have Dr. Katie Goldie here with us. Uh, she's a registered nurse and assistant professor at uh, Queen's School of Nursing. And she was recently awarded a scientist and nursing research chair at Providence Care. And her research focuses on identifying opportunities for improvement of health services uh, to bring uh, in innovation to end of life care, palliative care, supportive end of life care. Um, She's also sat on the Health Sciences Research Ethics Board for the last seven years and is currently co-chair, vice co-chair, yeah. Um, and I think actually her interests really align a lot with yours, Victoria, so that's uh, very nice. Uh, and uh, we're delighted to have you here. Uh, Victoria, Dr. Shepard is a senior research fellow in the Center for Trials Research at Cardiff University. Uh, she was telling me how wet and green it is. I was like, that sounds a lot like New Zealand. Uh, so uh, we both are happier to be in snowier climes right now. Uh, she's a special interest in research involving underserved populations with a particular focus on populations where getting you know, the traditional idea of informed consent is challenging. Um, she's, as you see here today, pioneering a program of research exploring the legal, ethical, and practical issues around research involving adults who lack capacity and consent. And it's through this Churchill Fellowship, she was telling me just before that 
once she finishes, she, there's a ceremony. She's going to get a little medal with a CF on it. My initials are CF. I was like, I could do a CF, CF. You know, that would be nice. But apparently I, I'm not in the running. Uh, so I'd like to ask you to uh, give a warm welcome to Dr. Shepard, who's a long way from home. She's going to speak for about 35 minutes. And then our commentators will have 10 minutes and 10 minutes. And we'll have about 20 minutes or so for Q&A. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a lot of time to unwind and really unpack some of these tricky questions. So lovely to have you here. And thanks to our commentators as well. Thank you very much, Colleen. And yeah, the weather is making me feel really at home, this kind of miserable wet. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually glad there's not much snow, but it would be nice. Um, so I'm going to talk about a particular part of that program of work I lead, which is the idea that actually we're very committed to thinking that we should be encouraging people to plan ahead about their kind of care and treatment and, and lots of other arrangements as well, should they lose capacity in the future. But currently, we don't really think so much about what about research? What about encouraging people to express ahead of time what their preferences would be about taking part or not in research? So I'm going to focus on that, which is part of what this uh, fellowship visit uh, is all about. So what I'll do is give a quick background to research involving uh, adults who lack capacity to consent and particularly around that substitute decision making. So when someone else is involved in making a decision on their behalf about whether they take part or not. I'm going to talk a little bit about the legal frameworks that cover that, particularly from a UK uh, context, and then also think about what the difference is currently between future planning for health and research, and introduce the concept of advanced research planning, and think about the kind of international provisions and how they differ for that. I'm then going to share some of the key findings for the empirical research that lots of other people and now I have been doing in this area, and then think about what the future steps might be for this work. Uh, both in the UK and potentially beyond. And then just to give kind of a little brief introduction, so uh, the UK is made up of four countries. You can see Cardiff there marked at the bottom, it's the capital of Wales. And from a legal framework perspective, England and Wales share a legal framework by and large. And when it comes to mental capacity legislation, that's the Mental Capacity Act. There's a different uh, legal framework in Scotland. They have an Adults with Incapacity Act. And Northern Ireland, what you can't see is the Republic of Ireland below that, but in Northern Ireland, they have a, a similar mental capacity act that's based very much on the England and Wales version, and is in the process of being implemented. So then moving on to think about people living with cognitive impairment and why that might be a particular focus for us. So in the UK, over 2 million people uh, have significantly impaired decision making. It's hard to kind of put a number on it because, of course, capacity is very much time and decision specific. So people might have capacity for some decisions and not for others. But you can see some statistics there about the particular populations where this might be particularly relevant. So perhaps people living with dementia who might be living in a long term care facility, people with acute mental health conditions, uh, people who are critically ill. And of course, it might include some people living with a learning disability uh, and of course, some people perhaps towards the end of life as well. With a global ageing population, we would expect the numbers of people living with cognitive impairment to grow considerably over the coming decades. And of course, as part of that, people living with cognitive impairment will also grow in number as well. And so research really is key to improving the care and treatment that these groups receive. 
When it comes to research, there are, of course, particular ethical legal considerations when we think about people who are not able to provide their own consent to take part or not. And a lot of this focus around that involvement of a substitute decision maker, so someone else being involved in that decision. And all of that contributes to this group being less included in research, so less served by research compared to populations that can provide their own consent to take part. And that's where that kind of underserved populations, which is one of my kind of broader interests. So the key provisions in the legal frameworks governing research, again, this is from a UK perspective, vary depending on the type of research. So whether it's a clinical trial involving a medicine or not, or whether it's other types of research. And those are governed by the clinical trial regulations, but also then the uh, mental capacity legislation, which of course differs across the UK. But essentially a core part is that uh, researchers will need to have adequate arrangements in place before involving uh, someone who lacks capacity to consent in the research project. They must take reasonable steps to identify someone who knows the person well, who can give advice on their behalf about whether they think that person would want to take part in this project or not. Unlike some other uh, legal frameworks, there isn't a kind of hierarchy of uh, relationships. It's someone that knows the person well, but usually a close family member, perhaps a close friend. And if no one is available to act in a personal capacity, researchers can involve a professional, so a member of the person's care team, for example, who similarly advises on their behalf about whether they think they would want to take part or not in the project. And of course, that can be quite challenging, and we'll come on to that in a moment. In clinical trials, the same situation for someone acting in a personal capacity or in a professional role, but in this case, they're a legal representative and they actually provide consent on the person's behalf. So it's a much stronger legal basis. But very similarly, it's based on that person's presumed will about what they would want. And just to note that unlike other areas of health law, there's an absence of relevant case law when it comes to research. These cases just generally don't come before the courts. And what's key as well to, to understand is that the Mental Capacity Act in England, Wales, has these five key underpinning principles. They're traditionally kind of represented by five fingers on a hand. One of the main ones is which is that any decisions uh, made or actions taken must be in the person's best interest. But there's an exception to that for research, because, of course, research is not intended necessarily to directly benefit the person, but to contribute to future knowledge for future patients. So there's a key exception for this because there are other safeguards in place, which include that nothing must be done if the person appears to object, if they wish to be withdrawn or indicate in any way, that their interests must not outweigh those of science or must outweigh those of science and society. And what's really key is that bottom one. So if uh, they wouldn't be included if it's contrary to any advanced statement that they've made. But there's a real gap because people don't make advanced statements about research. So quite how we implement that important clause is unknown. And again, I'll come back to that a little later, but might it be then that this important legal safeguard is actually missing for these populations? We're just gonna talk a little bit about the current arrangements we have that enable people anticipating incapacity in the future to discuss their preferences about future care and treatment. So advanced care planning is a kind of informal arrangement. Usually it's based on a discussion with the person and their family members and their clinicians. Now, these are non-binding kind of goals of care or preferences, usually recorded in their health records, 
although people can go on to make an advanced statement, sometimes termed a living will, where they might define particular things that they do or don't want. People can also uh, put in place an advanced decision to refuse treatment. So this is negatively framed. So it's the sorts of treatments they wouldn't wish to have. They need to be named and the circumstances in which they wouldn't wish to receive them. And that can include life-sustaining treatment if expressly stated. And these are legally binding, certainly in England and Wales. But currently, both advanced care planning and advanced decisions to refuse treatment don't appear to be considered to include or to extend to preferences about research. So we have this kind of clear gap. Of course, people can also appoint a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare, separate lasting power of attorney for finance and property in England and Wales. Uh, and again, this is where someone can appoint someone or more than one person to act jointly or severally on their behalf should they lose capacity. And that can include being able to consent to care and treatment decisions but those decisions must be made in the person's best interest. Uh, there's an exception for life-sustaining treatment where uh, that the, the uh, attorney can only consent uh, to those or, or, or refuse to consent to those if, again, that lasting power of attorney expressly includes that provision. Lasting power of attorney is then registered with the Court of Protection, uh, and this leads to concerns. There's quite a low uptake, as there probably is in, in Canada and beyond, so less than 20% of people over 55 have a lasting power of attorney in place. There's a high error rate. So when they come to be registered, a large portion get returned because they have errors in them. And also concerns about the time and costs involved uh, in uh, registering uh, lasting power of attorney. And again, lasting power of attorney in the UK, not generally considered to include preferences about research. And I just wanted to highlight at the bottom that of course, lasting power of attorney, Decisions must be made in the person's best interests. Research is that exception to that. And of course, all those arrangements are in place because we think it's challenging uh, when someone is not able to say what they themselves would, would wish for their care and treatment. And exactly the same challenges occur when we think about substitute decision-making for research. So family members uh, often feel uncertain about what they should decide on the person's behalf. It can lead to them experiencing stress. Uh, and that might be particularly so in some contexts, so uh, critical care, for example. But actually, probably all uh, substitute decision makers experience some degree of burden. And that contributes to a higher uh, proportion of families declining participation research than patients would themselves. There are also concerns about accuracy, so whether a substitute decision maker can accurately determine what that person would want or not. Uh, and uh, you can see some of the, the previous research that's gone on looking at hypothetical scenarios. Uh, and the idea being that actually, if you just randomly assign someone, perhaps they might have a similar kind of accuracy rate. And again, we'll come back to it, but accuracy is an interesting uh, concept in this use. And I mentioned earlier about professionals being required to make a decision based on the person's wishes and preferences. But actually, you know, if you're uh, admitted to accident and emergency and the clinician now sees you, how could they possibly know what your preferences would be about research? But that's that's the, the kind of underpinning legal basis. And it's been described as this kind of convenient legal fiction that we kind of avoid thinking too much about. But all of this might indicate that currently decisions about research made on behalf of people lacking capacity may not be in accordance with the person's wishes. So this is where advanced research planning comes in. 
So it's considered a kind of general term uh, for a voluntary process where people might be encouraged to think about, to discuss, perhaps to document what their preferences are about research. It might include making an advanced research directive, so a kind of more formal looking document, but also naming who they would trust to act as a substitute decision maker. And this is sought to strengthen authentic decision making. So we contrast that to accuracy, where in accuracy, we're trying to work out exactly what the person would have decided and match it. And authentic decision making is more about understanding, given these circumstances, what do we think their values, their wishes, their preferences would be, and trying to come as close to that as we think we can. It might be tailored to a specific project, and that's often termed advanced consent, or perhaps more general views about the person's wishes. And there have been some uh, introduction into various legal frameworks for advanced research planning, albeit in kind of different combinations. So it was first proposed uh, about 30 years ago. Uh, this was from Canada uh, as part of their consultation. So in some ways you might even describe Canada as being perhaps the birthplace of advanced research planning or advanced research directives. Um, and this has now gained some traction, uh, both in kind of ethical and legal recognition, both across North America, Europe and beyond. So in Canada, the Tri-Council Policy Statement talks about people being able to have a signed research directive and that a substitute decision maker must be guided by these directives and it enables people to express their preferences. In the USA, it talks about, again, people having the opportunity to express their preferences and then goes on to say that these should be given considerable weight. So we're now giving some kind of measure about how much they should be taken into account, but by themselves cannot be considered sufficient for enrollment in a particular study, so wouldn't constitute consent in and of themselves. Australia, a little more complex, so the position in law differs between the different states and territories. So you can see there, uh, ACT, talk about how someone can appoint a medical research power of attorney. In Tasmania, people can create an advanced research directive. Again, talking about the directions, values, preferences with regard to medical research. Western Australia talk about an advanced health directive that includes a decision to consent to or refuse to consent uh, to a project. So here we now move again into that kind of stronger consent decision. It's also been introduced into the EU, so it's not uh, a feature of the EU uh, legislation, but uh, in domestic law has been picked up uh, and, and as a kind of guidance. But interestingly, they've moved towards a position where actually it's a requirement in the summer circumstances for someone to have expressed their wishes to take part in research before they can be included. So you can see there in, in Switzerland where they talk about that consent, prior consent must be evidenced by a document. And in Germany, uh, people uh, who lack capacity can only be included in research that wouldn't directly benefit them, again, if they have previously declared their wish to participate. And we might think about some of the groups that perhaps might not be in a position to do so, might not wish to do so, might not know that they need to do that. So interestingly, this has been introduced without really any discussion or any kind of mechanism for actually how people could do that. So we get, again, we get that clear kind of law uh, policy gap. In the UK, uh, this was about 25 years ago, the Nuffield Council on Bioethics uh, in a report looking at dementia recommended that there should be research into uh, developing some form of non-binding advanced statement for research, and that actually perhaps the role of the welfare attorney should be explicitly extended to uh, include decisions over research. 
but again, not much further on in the UK uh, in the last 25 years. And why might advanced research planning be desirable? It might seem quite obvious that we might think it's a way of people both uh, extending and supporting uh, autonomy. We might think it makes those preferences actually be the basis for research, so a stronger version of informed consent might support greater inclusion if actually the substitute decision makers um, might have less concerns because they've actually now got a basis on which to make their decision. And similarly, the kind of gatekeeping that we see from research ethics committees and clinicians. And as I've gone uh, through this past week speaking to people in Canada, that's come up very similarly as it does in the UK and elsewhere. And it might actually improve the confidence of substitute decision makers when they make a decision and so might reduce that harm that they themselves potentially experience as well. And currently we have this gap between uh, people's preferences about research and about health and care. But actually, in reality, we think that there should be an integration between research and health uh, and, and care treatment. So certainly it's the ambition of the National Health Service in the UK that research is fully integrated into clinical pathways. It forms a key part of that. So it's possible it could help with that as well. But of course, it raises a number of questions as well. So it might be challenging for people to predict ahead of time to understand what their preferences would be. Should they develop cognitive impairment? Should they be offered research in the future? Whether the informational standard required for informed consent could actually be met. How would we know what future research might come up, what the risks and benefits might be? And also concerns about therapeutic misconceptions. So this idea that people might not understand that research isn't intended to benefit them directly. It's about generating future knowledge. And if we tie research and care too closely together, there's a risk we yeah, exacerbate that therapeutic misconception. And also the risk of exacerbating the legal complexities. You know, this is already a very complex area. People really don't necessarily engage in it uh, when it comes to their care and treatment. There's also discussions around the costs involved. So if it's part of that lasting power of attorney and we have a cost to that, will that deter people? What about those jurisdictional differences, particularly when often research spans jurisdictions? But also the careful interpretation. If you just have written in a document what someone's preferences are, how are those then uh, kind of interpreted in the moment? And of course, a lot of practical questions. So can and how this should be implemented? Will it be taken up? Will these actually be usable uh, advanced research directives? Um, and, and again, that idea that people don't necessarily currently engage well with incapacity planning and research perhaps might seem even more distant, even less relevant to them. So we're lucky in that there has been some empirical research in this area. Um, again, uh, some in Canada, so uh, a few years ago, uh, a, a randomized controlled trial of an advanced planning intervention which combined health uh, and research found actually there were really high levels of willingness so people were quite keen to complete it uh, around 80 percent of the people included in the study around 15 percent of those indicated in their advanced directive that they wouldn't want to be included in research so we know that people also feel able to say that's not for me thank you but it did show little effect on that accuracy of hypothetical decisions. Uh, and, and again, we might think that's a kind of perhaps problematic measure to be using because the, the person predicting ahead of time what they also would want is again a prediction. It's not a true decision on their, their basis either. But that kind of led to this, I think, perhaps not going much further because there were concerns that actually it was not, wasn't effective or not. In the USA, uh, a little bit differently in that these were people entering a hospital 
low levels of completion around 11%, again, 13% saying they wouldn't want to be included in research. And the, the concerns about the low level of uptake led to concerns that actually having it as a requirement, as it is currently in, in Switzerland and Germany to some degree, would actually prevent future research. So we move backwards rather than forwards. Uh, in Australia, which is going to be the next step on my uh, on my um, Churchill Fellowship travels, uh, they again have done some initial surveys, again found very high interest uh, levels uh, of uh, completing advanced research directive. They've actually developed an advanced research directive and accompanying guidance, and that's probably key so that people actually know and are supported to understand what it is that they're completing. Uh, it's now available through their uh, online registry, so people wanting to take part in dementia research, sign up to step up for dementia research, are offered the opportunity to download and complete an advanced research directive. Uh, and so their thoughts have now very much turned to implementation about how we can actually increase this uptake in practice. And some current work going on again uh, in Canada, here in Ontario. So I'm working with uh, colleagues at the Ottawa Hospital who are doing some work around advanced consent in stroke. So again, a very kind of narrow definition. So these are people that are attending stroke prevention clinics, might have had a previous stroke at high risk of another stroke. And actually, could they be supported to complete a document saying in the future, should I have a stroke, I would like to take part in this or other trials. But again, importantly, they're given the information about those potential trials. Again, high levels of support, uh, certainly from uh, stroke physicians, which you might imagine, uh, but also from research ethics committee chairs, although they had concerns that where it might be quite broad rather than specific, uh, that actually that, that would be much more problematic. But again, some work ongoing. So turning to the UK, so in the past couple of years, this is some work that I've been doing, again, exploring just initial kind of feasibility, acceptability of advanced research planning. So uh, a survey of members of the public, including people living with capacity affecting uh, conditions and family members, but also professionals, so researchers and ethics committees. Uh, again, high levels of support for implementing advanced research planning. You can see at the bottom there, 97% members of public thought this was something that they would be interested in. 94% of the professionals thought it was important that people have this opportunity. Uh, and then also kind of explored exactly what they thought uh, advanced research planning and the preferences should uh, mean. So a strong support for it being a formal process, not necessarily a legal process, so not as far uh, as advanced decision to refuse treatment, for example. Um, but also strong support for uh, it being um, directive in terms of how the uh, substitute decision maker uses it to make a decision. So not binding them to that, but not kind of advisory, somewhere kind of in between as well. But they also identified some of the barriers and facilitators as well. And again, this is a key part of this uh, finding. So they identified that people would need support. We can't just kind of put an advanced research directive out there and assume that people will know what they're doing, that the timing of that will be different for different people when they're kind of motivated, interested, able to do so. Concerns about the complexity, again, the cost uh, that might be involved, the need to embed it in the other kind of future planning arrangements people might have. But concerns as well that whatever was in an advanced research directive, for example, might be misunderstood, might be ignored by the substitute decision maker. But also concerns that people might change their mind and would need to have an ability to kind of revisit and update uh, any preferences. And importantly, concerns about safeguarding uh, as well came up. 
I followed that up with some interviews, which provided an opportunity to explore some of this in much more detail with people who had taken part in the survey to kind of unpick a little bit about what they told me. Uh, and six main themes, I'm just going to touch on three of those in the interest of time. But firstly, thinking about how the wishes expressed in advanced research planning might then be used by a substitute decision maker. And there was quite a difference between people. Some people thought that this actually uh, was advisory, not legally binding, uh, that it might not necessarily even have much weight. You can see the quote there from the person living with a condition that kind of thought, well, if I've gone to all the trouble of completing this and I've signed my name to it, that is my wish and this should be legally binding. So a kind of discordance in what people uh, were telling me. Thinking about the kind of best mode for recording preferences as well, and a lot of this inherits basically the same challenges that other legal planning uh, um, arrangements currently have. So they talked about how actually in the UK, you might not know that someone has a lasting power of attorney unless they kind of waive it as they kind of go into hospital. There's no integrated system. So where it's registered with the court of protection doesn't necessarily feed into your care records. And if it's on an IT system, is it really accessible to people, particularly if they then want to update their preferences? And equality and accessibility came out as a really strong theme. And you can see that quote at the bottom that talks really powerfully how actually if we have it as a requirement, again, going back to that suggestion that it might be for some, that we're going to filter out anyone but the very most informed who will undoubtedly be tertiary educated, white, well-represented people. And basically it's going to become uh, exclusive through its attempt to include. So again, real uh, signals that we need to think about this ahead of time. And then lastly, just to think about where those opportunities to engage in advanced research planning might come in. So legal planning, uh, when people are putting a power of attorney in place, when they are expressing their wishes about uh, refusing uh, future treatment, for example. Also care planning at the top there. So again, when people are undergoing advanced care planning, but also the kind of altruistic uh, component as well. So when they're signing up to uh, opt into an organ donor registry, for example, or donate blood. And when they're taking part in research, again, signing up to a registry, taking part in a study, or when there are kind of life changes. So perhaps when someone's moving into a care home, when they've been diagnosed with a condition that might affect their capacity in the future. And then also engagement. And that was quite interesting and something I hadn't expected. But a lot of people talked about how actually when people engage uh, with charities and kind of third sector organisations, again, signposting to advanced research planning might be an opportunity. So in the UK, you might have the same park run where people kind of go along on a Saturday morning and run as a kind of community event. Could something like that be an opportunity for people to say, you know what, if you're interested in research, have a, have a you know, talk about it with your family, think about what you'd like in the future. So the next steps for all of this are actually to start moving on to, okay, can we actually develop an intervention to support people to express their views through advanced research planning? but with a key focus on ensuring accessibility. Uh, and that will be informed by this visit uh, to Canada and following on to that, to Australia, where this empirical research has been conducted and hopefully some lessons learned about why it does work, why it doesn't work, perhaps how we can do something in the future. Uh, just some concluding thoughts, time is marching on. Um, so it seems clear that advanced planning or care and treatment should also include the ability for people to express their preferences about taking part or not in research. That it does seem to be featuring in a lot of legal frameworks, but there are clear gaps between the legislation and policy and also practice. But there are questions that remain about how uh, this intersects with those existing arrangements. 
uh, and what safeguards might be needed to protect people. And of course, how it can be implemented without exacerbating those existing inequalities that we're already concerned about. So that's partly why I'm here today, is to explore some of these issues to help inform this future work. Thank you. Thank you.